0: And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So states the most influential creation myth in human history, the book of Genesis, which claims planet Earth and all the creatures which live on it are essentially subordinate to humankind. But in the age of the Anthropocene, of a warming planet whose biocapacity we've already overextended, Such a view looks increasingly outdated, which is perhaps why, as the climate movement has grown in recent years, so too has the adoption of vegetarian and vegan lifestyles. Thus, climate change, it seems, is driving a revision of how we relate not only to one another, but the entirety of the natural world, including non-human animals. Joining me to discuss that is probably the most important philosopher in the history of the animal rights movement. His book, Animal Liberation, first published in 1975, has sold hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide and helped give rise to a movement of the same name. Peter Singer, welcome to Downstream. Thank you, Aaron.
1: It's good to be with you.
0: I'll get right into the the core topic. Uh, And I think it's probably the one takeaway question most people watching this would want you to answer. Should we all be vegan?
1: Ideally, yes, Um, or at least very close to it. Um, You know, so... And I suppose I should add, in the present state of technology where we don't yet have um, cellular meat produced without a sentient animal being involved. Because I think if we did, um, that would then we would not have to be vegan. Um, then we would have ethical meat that did not involve either animal suffering or a significant quantity of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and for that matter, nor the risk of generating a virus that would cause another pandemic. So um, you know, this is not a kind of absolute principle for all time. But in the present state of the Earth, um, it's certainly better to be vegan. Um, let me also add: uh, I'm not suggesting that people who struggle to feed themselves and their families um, or to nevertheless give up animal-based sources of food uh, for them for themselves um, and therefore be malnourished or even starve um, I'm really addressing this to people who like you and me can walk into a supermarket and have a great array of different foods that we can purchase and essentially a choice as to whether to eat animal products or not eat them um, quite compatible with maintaining our health and uh, our budget and
0: uh, having a satisfying cuisine too. So you wrote the book 45 years ago, 46 years ago this year. I mean, that's a, a long passage of time has passed since. In the preface to the 1975 edition, you compare, uh, and these are the words, tyranny of human over non-human animals, which I think most people would agree with. You you compare that to slavery. Now, I, I want to know a few things. I mean, firstly, do you think that's somewhat distasteful as a comparison? And also, do you... Do you even think, looking back 46 years later, do you think the equivalence is even useful? Do you think, because obviously this is a political issue, it raises more kickback than is necessary? I just want to sort of put within context, obviously I think you very articulately write that our relationship to animals is is, is evil, effectively morally evil. Where does that stand in the sort of grand array of human, of human misfortunes we've inflicted upon, not just one another, but also uh, other creatures? Well, I think it ranks uh,
1: very high among the uh, awful things that we've done to others, including other humans. Um, To your question about slavery, I'm of course not saying that there's a perfect uh, analogy that uh, what we do to animals is identical to what uh, the European slave traders and slave owners did to slaves. Um, But I do think that the analogy is a helpful one. I think it it helps us to see a number of different things. Uh, The most important analogy is that you have a powerful group, a group that is able to dominate and enslave others, and I do think we enslave animals by the billions, in fact, um, that is able to do that and then generates an ideology to justify what it's doing. Um, you started by quoting from the Bible, and that actually <laughs> makes the parallel as well, because uh, we justify our, our treatment of others in in both these instances by referring to the Bible. Um, the The Dominion verse has been used uh, you know very influentially throughout the Christian era by leading theologians like Thomas Aquinas um, to justify. Uh, continued treatment of, of animals and, and essentially disregard of their interests. But the Bible was also appealed to by the the white slave traders and slave owners. Um, they believed that the reference in the Bible to the children of Ham, who the Bible says will be our servants, um, was a reference to Africans. Uh, there's no justification whatsoever for that, of course, but, but uh, it was another way of appealing to the sacred scripture in order to justify the um, essentially them doing what they want, what they perceived as being in their own interests, at the cost of the vital interests of others. Um, and that was what the slave trade did, um, and what slavery did, and, and that's what we're doing in relation to animals.
0: You also write, quote, animal liberation is human liberation. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Is, it, is, it, is human liberation impossible without animal liberation? Well, yes, I think
1: insofar as we keep uh, a power relationship that is basically um, you know, our naked power over them, um, spuriously justified, as I said, by various different kinds of ideologies, um, then I think we are not really being open about how we're relating to the rest of the world and for that matter to other humans as well. I think we need to be more honest about ourselves and... Uh, Not only to be honest and transparent, but actually to change what we're doing so that we treat uh, all beings on this planet in a way that is commensurate with their needs and their interests. And I think uh, if, if we don't do that to animals, it's less likely that we'll ever really get into that situation in terms of our relations with other
0: humans. And what about pets? Um, I mean, it's kind of touched on in the book. <clears throat> I mean, I read the most recent edition with the Yuval Harari um, introduction. But where, where do they figure in this? Because I, and I own a dog. Is that morally unjustifiable? Well, strictly speaking, um, I don't think
1: there should be an ownership of uh, a non-human animal. So to that extent, yes. Um, but you could have a companion uh, who was a dog and you could have a license to keep that dog and look after that dog. And as long as you treat that dog well, um, your license would not be revoked. Uh, I think that would be a a reasonable sort of situation. You would essentially be a a guardian of that dog in the way that uh, somebody might be a guardian of a child or somebody who was intellectually disabled and not able to look after themselves. So yeah, there, there can certainly be relationships, uh, ethical relationships with companion animals.
0: Because some people would say, oh, this is, they have quite a, a rarefied understanding of nature, which is to say the natural world is something quite distinct from, from human relationships. Um, and it sounds to me that in, that in that sort of description of how we may be guardians of dogs or, you know, sort of companion animals, you, you don't necessarily subscribe to that rarefied understanding of nature.
1: Probably not. I'm not absolutely sure what you mean by a reified understanding of nature.
0: Yeah. So, uh, this, well, for, for, for our audience, the thingification of nature. So, oh, isn't nature sublime? Even though, of course, particularly here in Britain, you know, what we perceive as, na- as nature has been fabricated by, by humans over millennia well, everywhere, of course, but it's it's particularly obvious here with all the sort of fields and the hedgerows, et cetera, et cetera. There's that perception of nature, and that's something, for instance, in the climate movement, people think that's nature, and obviously humans shouldn't interact with it. But in the the case of dogs, we've had relationships with dogs for uh, longer than we've had cities, longer than we've had writing. And so some people sort of think, well, the natural state of humankind isn't really to isn't to have domesticated animals, but you don't, you don't seem to think that. I mean, that's just an argument I've come across, for instance, from various anarcho-primitivists who would, you know, they have a kind of animist worldview and they don't think that we should exercise this kind of relationship with other animals. They think it's unhealthy, but you don't think that.
1: Uh, so there's two different questions going on here. One is, is you know, can you decide what is natural and what is not? And that's very difficult. But the other is, you know, if you have decided that something is natural, does that mean it's good and right? Um, and if you have decided it's unnatural, does that mean it's bad? And I think the answer to those questions are no. Um, things can be natural and bad, and things can be unnatural and good. So uh, the ethical question is not decided at all by deciding whether it's natural for us to have relationships with dogs.
0: That's a really uh, uh, superb answer. Um, what's speciesism? Again, just to go back to the second question, you, you say that it's commensurate with – not necessarily commensurate – a good analogue to understand what you mean by saying speciesism is is sexism or racism – can you explain why?
1: Yeah, but though I've already said that in a way when we were talking about slavery. So I think the analogy is holds uh, with racism of the most blatant kind, as I said, with, for example, slave ownership. Um, and it also holds with sexism, uh, again, of the most blatant kind, of the idea that males are entitled to rule over women um, uh, and and essentially you know, use women for their convenience and pleasure. Uh And that's the way we think about animals uh, as well. And uh, as I was saying, in in all three of these cases, you have this dominant group that has power over the others, that uh, finds it convenient or enjoyable, wants to use others in certain ways that are inconsistent with the interests of the others. But they justify this to themselves by developing an ideology, and we talked about the biblical justification of both slavery and uh, human dominion over animals, and of course, you can find biblical justifications for sexism as well. You can quote, you know, Paul saying that uh, women should basically not speak, just say yay or nay or whatever. Um, you know, there's there's lots of there's there's lots of biblical uh, passages which can be quoted by male chauvinists to want to justify their support for uh, uh, male domination over women.
0: But the response, I suppose, that would come from most people, <clears throat> whether it was relating to sexism or racism, they would say, well, there's something quite unique and special about human beings, about homo sapiens. And a big part of your argument, not just here, but in other books too, is that there isn't. And that actually the basis of rights, classical utilitarian argument, oh, you can <laughs> correct me if not. Um, obviously, you know, uh, the, the absence of pain and the, the presence of pleasure or, you know, enjoyment... Do you think that mammals, in particular, I mean, those are the animals that we tend to eat. Do, do you think that they they effectively feel pleasure the same as human beings? Um, not in all respects. I mean,
1: um, I feel pleasure when I write a, a good paper in philosophy, and I've, I've made a powerful, compelling argument. Um, no animal, no non-human animal to the on on this planet, anyway. There may be others on other planets. Um, uh, feels that kind of pleasure. So there are various sorts of pleasures that are open to us that are not open to um animals no doubt there are some pleasures that are open to animals that are not open to us you know flying by means of your own wing power um is something that we can't do even if we can hang glide or you know so so yeah there are different pleasures and uh, there are certainly different cognitive capacities Uh, what you said is it's not completely correct. What I, what I, I do think that the uh, intellectual capacities of humans are, uh, as far as we know, um, unique on this planet. They're probably not unique in the universe, but that's so vast. Uh, what I would say, rather, is that being a member of the species Homo sapien is not in itself something that gives you rights or privileges that um, members of other species lack. Because they're not members of the species homo sapien, that boundary, I think, is the mistake. The idea of making the boundary of the moral community or the boundary of beings with rights or the boundaries of beings to whom we owe equal consideration of their interests, making that run absolutely parallel with the boundary of the species homo sapien, has no justification because not all members of the species Homo sapiens are superior in those cognitive capacities I mentioned to, all members of every other species.
0: Do you think that potentially diminishes, though, the, the the rights that we give to human beings? Because on an analytical basis, I think most people, I think most people would agree with that. Um, you know, uh, a mature, highly intelligent chimpanzee, like you say, has more cognitive capacities than a six-month-old baby, uh, uh, even maybe than than you know, a former president of the United States. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> we won't go there.
0: <laughs> analytically, one can one can agree with that. But at the same time, one can say, well, as a sort of basis for moral principles and and an ethics about how to engage with the world, there is a very real danger that with that comes a diminishing of of human rights, because we we have this idea, and you know, yes, in a way, it's a, a secularized understanding of natural rights furnished upon us by God. I think that's a, you know that's a well chronicled basis upon which secular human rights, you know, where they come from. But at the same time, if you look at the sort of span of human history over the last 250 years, that conceit has been very useful. I mean, do you not think there's a very real danger that by elevating the rights of non-human animals, we might dilute that somewhat?
1: Uh, there's always a danger in in expanding the moral circle that you'll weaken the power of morality within that group. So uh, you know, when you had a community of, let's say, 150 people which, um, you know, we're told was probably the way humans lived for most of their existence as a species. Um, no doubt, you had a tight, cohesive group, um, and when you then start to include considerations of people who live over the hills in the next valley, um, you know, you might say, "Well, that's going to weaken the cohesion of, uh, of our society." Um, and you know, you could say the same thing for uh, expanding the circle beyond. Europeans beyond those whites who were engaging in, in slavery, um, no people said, "Well, you know, you shouldn't be that concerned about Africans. We should be giving priority to our fellow Britons or our fellow Europeans." Uh, so there's there's always that danger, but uh, you know, well, you've got to look at the other side as well, um, and look look at what happens when you leave sentient beings out of that circle of morality. Uh, you know, there's a typically far larger group. That is then ruthlessly exploited uh, and suffers as a result of that exploitation. So I, I think you have to try to, you know, avoid the bad consequences of broadening the group as much as you can. But that there's some risk that you won't completely be able to do that. I I don't deny that there is some risk. I just think that you you have to do it nevertheless.
0: So in the book you talk about um, sort of two two egregious ways in which we compromise the rights of non-human animals. One is uh, eating them, uh, and another is animal testing. Um, and, and just sort of going back over the books, it's the first time I'd read it in a, in a while. Some of the animal testing is just remarkable. And it's important to say, that the examples you cite in this edition are, are really run up to the end of the 1980s. The use of um, beagles by the US military, uh, feeding them TNT, small doses of TNT, giving chimpanzees unlimited amounts of cocaine. Uh, do these sorts of tests still go on? I mean, some of them are like, to, for want of a better word, a lot of them are kind of psychotic, you know, um, giving dogs heat strokes, basically cooking them and finding out at what temperature they, they die. I mean, does that still happen? Uh, I can't
1: say that that particular experiment you just mentioned still happens. Um, <laughs> as As it happens, I just began at the beginning of this calendar year to start collecting uh, information for a revised edition of Animal Liberation, which I hope to bring out sometime probably next year. Um, and already I found uh, some experiments that are very disturbing that I'd hoped had stopped. I haven't looked at heat stroke yet, and I haven't found heat stroke experiments. But um, there is a series of experiments I talk about in the earlier editions of Animal Liberation called learned helplessness. Um, Learned helplessness was an attempt to produce an animal model of depression. um, And it was done by putting animals, for example, dogs were used, but other species as well, um, in a cage where the entire floor could be electrified. And then turning on um, electric shocks so they could not escape, and in you know some of the descriptions are horrendous. They say the animal uh, uh, yelps, uh, runs around, uh, urinates, defecates, tries to escape the shock for um, you know a long time. But but it's getting um, say let's say 60 repeated inescapable shocks over a period of time, and after a while the animal just gives up. Um, it 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 can't escape the shock, and it just lies on the floor. And then the scientists say, so we've produced an animal model of depression. We call it learned helplessness. Um, Now, I had hoped that those experiments were no longer conducted, that I would not find any recent experiments. But that turns out not to be true. Um, The ones I found, admittedly, are not conducted on dogs. Maybe people are more sensitive about what the public reaction would be. They're conducted on on mice and rats. Um, But You know, mice and rats are sentient beings, I'm sure. They're mammals. They have nervous systems very like ours, um, and I'm sure that they're suffering in these experiments.
0: Do you you think that there's a relationship between, because obviously a lot of this is done by the defence establishment. It's done with a certain understanding of science in mind. Do you think kind of, which obviously has has exerted many powerful, positive consequences in the last few centuries, but also, you know, we, we know, for instance, it's kind of, Not always been welcome. There's been many egregious kind of you know tests on 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 humans and so forth. Do you think that this idea of the subordination of I mean, you talked about it at the beginning. You talked about it coming back on the Genesis introduction. But this idea, it does seem to me that animals are just a means to an end in terms of scientific endeavour. It does seem to me to reflect you know. 19th century understandings of, of of european primacy amongst other human beings now people might think oh that's denigrating the global south or the non-european not at all i'm i'm, I'm simply asking it is there a relationship between how europeans related to non-human europe uh, non-europeans in scientific discourses of the 19th century and how we relate to animals more recently do you think
1: well there's yes there's a sense certainly that that they could be used as research subjects in ways that you know, we Europeans would not use ourselves. And there are notorious experiments, most famous perhaps the Tuskegee uh, experiments conducted in Alabama, in which uh, which was experiments in the, the supposedly natural course of syphilis, um, which used African-Americans uh, as, as subjects and you know, it began at a time when there wasn't really a treatment for syphilis but it continued well after the time when there was a treatment for syphilis and when anybody not you know who came to a doctor not in this experiment was going to be treated but but those experiments continued and you know everybody agrees now that that was completely shocking uh, example of racism so um yes we did treat uh the races that we regarded as, as inferior in, in that way, and we are still treating the animals that we regard as inferior in, in that way. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not making that comparison, I'm not saying that, well, um, you know, animals uh, are in any sense like African Americans. Um, there, are, there are, of course, huge differences, but um, still, the idea that, that they are lesser beings who are in our power. Um, and uh, we can benefit from doing things that are harmful to them. That's, um, that's the basic mentality that uh, I think lies behind uh, both this form of racism and this form of speciesism.
0: A lot of the science as well as the experiments, and again, you know, these, these are ones that go back to the 1930s and, and the ones you chronicle in the edition I've looked at go through to the late 1980s. But a lot of the, the experiments just strike me as crank science, um and, and you're not a scientist you're a philosopher i'm not i i'm a social scientist by training but for instance the findings for instance you know in you know shooting an elephant with an lsd dart to what extent is that generalizable is the is the sample of elephants you're studying you know big enough for generalizable conclusions probably not definitely not even if you if you did get generalizable findings would that be extendable to humans almost certainly not you're looking at a mammal which weighs about a ton So, I mean, do do you think a lot of this stuff is crank science or was crank science, has absolutely no scientific value at all?
1: I think a lot of it has, um, you know, either no or very trivial scientific value. Um, I think a lot of it can be explained by the kind of publish or perish syndrome, that you make a career by getting articles published in journals. And to get articles published in a lot of science journals, you have to do something new that hasn't been done before. So, you know, there's... Uh, lots of, of, of publications where people are doing something that they acknowledge has been done in other species but hasn't been done in this particular species and they think that it will be interesting to do it in this particular species. And as you say, you know, very often we learn nothing at all from it. Um, and a lot of these series of experiments that I talk about in the book, in, including actually the Learned Helplessness series, which, as I said, is, is actually still going in the 21st century um, – there are other reviews of that science where people some scientists ask the question you know what have we learned from this decades long 50 years sometimes uh, uh, of experiments which you know not only cause an immense amount of animal suffering but could you know used a lot of, of scientific resources and of of money that could have been spent in in more helpful ways and and they review this and they say well basically we didn't really learn very much from it at all maybe maybe even nothing so um yeah i think that there is something that is needs to be changed about that
0: before we continue there there is an example um in the book of the primate equilibrium platform which is just i mean it's one of the most absurd things i've ever read which is effectively these chimpanzees were trained to navigate something which resembles you know a, a, a plane a flight platform and then they i mean there's a number of experiments but one is that they're slowly irradiated to see the extent to which radiation poisoning would compromise a pilot.
1: Yes, exactly, yeah, yes. This was done by the US, um, US uh, Air Force. Um, there's something called the Armed Forces Radiation um, Biology Institute, or uh, AFRI is its acronym. Um, and yeah, the idea was that you know, they wanted to find out whether if uh, pilots dropped a nuclear bomb and then had to fly through the radioactive cloud caused by the bomb. Would they still be able to fly, and would they be able, presumably, to return to their to their base? Um, and you know, the way they thought of doing that was it was as you described. You know, you you develop this platform that is controlled by a joystick like a pilot would use, um, and it it rocks from you know side to side, and you train um, by. Uh, giving electric shocks, you train the uh, the chimpanzee to uh, keep it level with the joystick, um, and that stops the shocks. So they learn to do that. And then, once they have trained them to do that, already a painful procedure, then you expose them to uh, radiation so that they are sick and, and vomiting and nauseous, presumably. Uh, um, and you see whether they are still able to keep the platform level. And, and from that, you're supposed to conclude something about whether a pilot would be able to fly through this uh, cloud of radiation. You know, we're, we're fortunate, I suppose, that has never actually needed to be tested because mm. uh, since uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we haven't had nuclear bombs dropped on cities. Um, but nevertheless, lots of primates have, have suffered uh, in order to test this.
0: And it's important to say, you know, when in the book, you're not rallying against the, all animal testing, but you just think there should be a, a much higher threshold than we've generally seen, although it's important to say that obviously a great deal has changed since you uh, since you published this book in 1975. But I mean, that's important to say. You, you do think there are some kinds of animal testing which are legitimate. Right.
1: right. I'm, I'm not an absolutist. And here I differ from some of my colleagues in the animal movement. Um, that's because I am a utilitarian uh, fundamentally, so I judge actions to be right or wrong in accordance with their consequences. Whereas some of my friend, other friends in the animal movements do take a stance on individual rights, which they think should not be overridden, no matter what the consequences are. Uh, so, um, yes, as a utilitarian, I have to say that it's certainly possible um, we can describe a hypothetical case, and possibly there are actual cases as well, where the benefits either to humans or to animals, although it's usually to humans, uh, are so great that they outweigh the costs to animals. Um, and in that case, uh, I could not say that that is the wrong thing to do. Um, if you could do it on on humans in ways that didn't cause more suffering, then that would be another option. Um, and I think often we, we could do that. But But certainly you can imagine situations where we can't do that and where um an experiment on a a limited number of animals taking every possible care to minimize any suffering eliminate it entirely if you can minimize it if you absolutely can't um and, and you know treating them with with that concern but nevertheless if this is the only way to solve some major disease that is causing uh a lot of you know a lot of deaths or suffering um then that could be
0: a justifiable thing to do. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about the Renaissance. It's kind of like towards the end, there's like an intellectual history you think of, of speciesism and it, and, it, and it appears that this idea of the elevation of, of human beings, Renaissance humanism and you know then Cartesian rationality, you kind of see this as like the ground zero or everything that's terrible about our relationships to animals. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Uh, yes, let me say... I'm not sure if it's a grand zero because it's not as if the Renaissance was following a period in which animals were better treated. Um, you know, it was following the the Middle Ages in which uh, Thomas Aquinas, as the leading Catholic theologian and most influential philosopher, theologian in Europe for centuries, um, said, uh, we have no duties to non-human animals. It's, it's not possible to sin against non-human animals um, because they – because of the God's dominion verse that we mentioned. Also, he said, because they don't have immortal souls. Um, so we have no duties to them. There's no reason relating to the animal's well-being against being as cruel as you like to an animal. The, the only reason would be that if you practice cruelty to animals, you might be cruel to humans as well, and that would be a bad thing. But, but the animal itself just doesn't come into that calculation. So, um, you know, when you get to the Renaissance period, uh, you know, you can certainly see some traces of uh, a different attitude that at least in some respects may recognise animals and their concerns. Um, I'll give you one example, which actually I've been interested in for different reasons. There was a Roman novel called The Golden Ass um, about uh, a, a person who gets turned into a donkey. Um, and then is, the novel is told through the viewpoint of the donkey um, and the donkey suffers a, a great deal. In, in some ways, there's parallels to the 19th century uh, English novel Black Beauty um, by Anna Sewell, which was talk, t- told through the, the, the perspective of a horse uh, you know, who was also cruelly treated in 19th century London. Um that actually was translated in in the Renaissance um, and uh, was used and read. So you know there was some concern for animals, maybe through the interest in in that work, but um, but a lot of the Renaissance did just put this idea of humans at the centre of the universe. And I suppose what people were really saying is. Um, it's not God who's the centre of the universe. They, perhaps they couldn't say that really openly, but they were wanting to celebrate humans rather as humans, you know, not being this sort of fallen beings um, in this miserable world, uh, uh, but but being humans as being something to to celebrate. And of course, there was some rediscovery of uh, uh, classical Greek and Roman thought. So um, yeah, yeah, there was a boost for humans. But but when it gets to the point where where Descartes says that um, animals are not even conscious beings; that they're, you know, yes, they make noises, but then so does your alarm clock, and uh, you know, they're more complicated than clocks. But that's because they're made by God, and clocks are made by humans, um, and uh, so therefore, it's okay to cut them open and examine uh, how their bodies function and don't forget this is a period when there's no anesthetics so you have to strap down live animals and cut them open to see uh, their innards um uh, yeah that's that's pretty much a zero perspective as well it's 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 certainly no better than uh, than what aquinas was saying
0: Obviously Descartes is kind of when I say ground zero he's kind of seen as the you know the, the maybe a better term is actually the year year zero I suppose but of of modern scientific rationality and I know that's hugely essentialist and that's not really how the history of ideas works but do you think that that understanding of science is necessarily based upon an alienation from other animals and an alienation from nature which is kind of still something we live in the shadow of
1: well i think that that view of science certainly dominated until relatively recently, um, you could say, until certainly until the 1950s and 60s, when, when particularly in psychology, behaviorism was a, a dominant view. And behaviorism was a kind of scientific Cartesianism, in that the behaviorists didn't actually say, we know that animals can't feel anything in the way that Descartes did. But they did say, science has no insight into animal conscious experiences. So, We shouldn't talk about that. We should just talk about the behavior of the animal. Um, And so they would not say, you know, if they gave these animals the electric shocks, as in the experiments I talked about, they wouldn't say the animal showed signs of pain. They would say the animal exhibited aversive behavior, meaning it tried to get away from the source of the electric shock. Um, Mm. So that view of science continued. And uh, I quote in Animal Liberation, uh, Alice Heim, who was a psychologist who, you know, went up to university, wanting to study the human mind, uh, and was told, you know, this was naive. The scientific, uh, the the object of study in in psychology, psychology in universities is is the rat, um, because that's you know something we can more easily do experiments on. Um, but that did start to change, and I think um, Jane Goodall had a huge positive influence in that change because Jane Goodall managed to do a scientific study of chimpanzees in which she actually got insights into what was going on in their thoughts and their minds. And, and she was a, able to describe uh, chimpanzee society by empathizing with them and by uh, making assumptions about you know, what they were trying to do and uh, what they were responding to in various ways. And, and you know, she met with quite a lot of resistance at first, but gradually that model of understanding animal behavior um, you know, not only then Jane Goodall but Diane Fossey with the gorillas uh, Beruta Galdacast with uh, orangutans um, and others um, were more empathetic and, and started to open a different window into uh, animal experiences and I think that that's continued uh, and we have to thank those pioneers and incidentally I don't think it's an accident that the three scientists I just mentioned were all women um, who, who developed that more Empathetic understanding with uh, primates, and and showed that it is good science.
0: Obviously, the books written forty six years ago, a great deal has changed since. Do you, and you know, obviously, the, the the name of the book gave rise to a whole movement, animal liberation movement. I suppose this is two questions. Do you view yourself and? Uh, I, I, you come across as very humble, so I suspect you won't say that this is the case. So you view yourself as the godfather of the animal liberation movement. And when you wrote the book in 1975, did you expect, did you expect the kind of progress that's been made since then? Did you expect that to happen more quickly, or are you surprised at how far we've come? Um, so the term
1: godfather is not one that I find particularly congenial. Um, you know... Uh, yeah, a philosopher who wrote a pioneering text that uh, has been influential um, I think is a reasonably accurate description um, what did I expect at the time I didn't quite know what to expect um, but I suppose you know my in my more optimistic moments I thought the arguments here are so powerful and and, and so clear that um, People might just read this and then say, this is right. I've got to stop participating in the exploitation of animals. Scientists would stop doing the experiments that we've just been talking about. But on a much larger scale, uh, people would say, I, I, I've got to stop participating in the practices that uh, we're doing that exploit animals. And the foremost practice in terms of numbers by far is is uh, raising them and and killing them for food, especially because already in 1975, uh, a lot of those animals had been put indoors and were being crowded together in factory farms, as they still are today, in conditions that are completely unsuitable. So, as I say in my more optimistic moments, I hope that this book would trigger uh, a pretty rapid movement um, against uh, what I'm talking about. And to that extent, I've been disappointed. Uh, You know, yes, there has been a movement. Yes, that's good. Yes, there have been some legal reforms in some countries, uh, including across the entire European Union and therefore in the United Kingdom as well, since that was part of the European Union at the time. Um, uh, And those things are good. But, you know, people are still eating factory-farmed animals and, and other animals, in fact, at a greater rate than they... We're in 1975, um, and that's very disappointing. Uh, you know, we we need to make uh, a lot more progress. It's a pity that we haven't made more rapid progress uh, over those 45 years.
0: Did you see a sort of um, an uptick in interest in your book with the growth of the climate movement? Because published in 75, I guess you get the Rio Summit early 1990s, but it's kind of after maybe mid-2000s that you see, you know, that there is a mass movement around climate justice. Uh, and then, of course, more recently, Copenhagen, Paris, etc., various international treaties. Obviously, the, the climate, maybe you want to go into this, the arguments around getting rid of meat from our diets, from a climate perspective, are very powerful. With the growth of the climate movement, have have you seen sort of more people revisit the book or come to it for the first time? And again, since COVID nineteen, there are good public health arguments to not eat meat. Ha- has that happened there as well? Do, do you think that you know people are repeatedly coming back to the book for for different political reasons, but finding the same conclusions?
1: I certainly think that both the uh, climate movement um, and more recently the uh, awareness of the public health risks of of uh, factory farming and of uh, Raising animals in general, uh, I think they've both increased the interest in being vegetarian or vegan, um, and yeah, probably because of that, some people have gone back to animal liberation. But I also think that there are a lot of there's a lot of work out there um, from the uh, from those particular movements that is independent. Uh, and actually, I I co-authored a book in 2006 called The Ethics of What We Eat together with with Jim Mason, um, which did talk about climate because, of course, when I wrote Animal Liberation in '75, I, you know, hadn't wasn't aware of climate change. Um, uh, I do talk about it briefly in, in uh, later editions, but uh, the way we eat talks more about climate change and more about environmental aspects of uh, factory farming and of of, of raising animals. Um, I think it talk maybe it talks a little bit about uh, the the risks of antibiotics, um, of, of antibiotic resistant. Um, bacteria arising in factory farms because that was already known, but, but the pandemic issue has become much more prominent, of course, in the last year or two. And although this particular coronavirus pandemic seems to have come out of eating wild animals, uh, bats or pangolins, um, the previous pandemic, the swine flu pandemic of 2009, which you know, hasn't didn't kill as many people as this one And most of the people it killed were outside affluent countries, so it it didn't get that much attention. But it came out of uh, factory farms, uh, pig factory farms, as the name suggests. And uh, we've also had avian flu coming out of uh, chicken factory farms. Uh, And uh, experts like uh, Dr. Michael Greger have warned us that if we really wanted to breed new viruses... The way to do that would be to get tens of thousands of animals, lock them up in a single shed, uh, let the crowding stress their uh, immune systems, um, and then get humans walking among them. um, And uh, the the, the viruses that would be developing in that shed would therefore get spread to humans. And we've seen that happening. So far, fortunately, we haven't had a virus that is both very contagious and highly lethal. Um, But maybe we've just been lucky. uh, And I do think that the risk of pandemics is a good reason for ending factory farming too.
0: It does feel like it's a matter of time. I mean, when I say a matter of time, it could be centuries, but, you know, that is still a matter of time. Hopefully human civilization will be around that long. You know, if you look at something like Ebola, you know, potentially 50% fatality rate, with the transmissibility of COVID-19, then you're looking at like a, a Black Death style situation, which we saw in, in Europe in what, the 14th, the 14th, 15th century, 14th century. So... Yeah, I I think actually that, again, you know, these kinds of metaphors sometimes aren't helpful, but it does feel like, and I'd like to know your thoughts on this, it does feel like nature or, you know, effectively evolutionary systems are trying to tell humanity this is a really counterproductive way of reproducing human life or trying to sustain our planet. Do you think that COVID-19 might be the thing that really, really makes a, a breakthrough in terms of, ending factory farming because it feels like it could well
1: it would be great if it did um let me say that and and it it should if we were thinking carefully about the future and protecting our future and especially looking at the immense costs of this pandemic and recognizing as you just say that the next one could be far worse um yes you know, that seems a logical conclusion that we should make sure that we end factory farming uh do i think that's actually going to happen well, I think you said a little while earlier that being a philosopher doesn't make me a futurist. So I'm just going to say, I don't know.
0: You spoke a little bit earlier about um, cellular agriculture, um, you know, synthetic meat. We we spoke to a CEO of a an agribusiness, Finless Foods, which sort of specializes in one day having tuna without actually killing any tuna fish and, and so on. Do you, do you look at that and, and feel very optimistic for the future? Because obviously, again, you're a philosopher, you're not a technologist, you're not a futurist. And I guess in 1975 or even 15 years ago, the prospect of meat without animals was implausible. Yet it's kind of already here. You know, Singapore legislated late last year for this stuff to be available domestically. I think from 2022, uh, the US is probably been in 2023. The EU we don't know because of some some legal protocols and so on but it it does feel like it's coming on stream in the 2020s is is that an area which makes you optimistic about the future of animal rights which is you know cellular agriculture and so on
1: i do think that's a very positive trend because i think it will be easier for people to really look and look at what we're doing to animals if they don't feel that that's going to threaten the way they've eaten and you know eating is something pretty central to people's lives and it turns out something pretty traditional that uh, the majority of people are very reluctant to change, even if uh, you know some people do make radical changes. So if they can get something that tastes and feels and cooks um, like meat, and in fact is meat um, nutritionally, and if that can be economically competitive, that's I think the main barrier at the moment to get the price down to something comparable to that of meat from animals. But if if that can happen, then I think it will be much easier for people to um, move away from uh, meat from animals and to recognize that it's a bad thing to make factory farmed animals suffer and uh, um, we may f- see the end of factory farm factory, f- factory farming uh, and animal commercial animal production coming much more quickly because of those technological breakthroughs.
0: A final question. you've had controversy in relation to another book uh not animal liberation that you've written uh relating to people with disabilities so can you sort of just explain you said earlier you're utilitarian how does that figure in terms of how we should treat other human beings with you know different cognitive capacities to you or i for instance and and where does that fit in with the sort of the broader view of how we relate to the non-human animal kingdom because again, I'll return to this thing that I, I think there are two criticisms of, of your work. One is that you, you could an, you anthropomorphize animals, which I, I think is a, a stupid criticism. I think it fundamentally doesn't get at what you're saying. But then the second criticism is that you, you're, like we say, you, you're potentially diminishing first the dignity and therefore the rights of, of humans. And I suppose that feeds through, like I say, to the, the criticism that you've had from people um, uh, around disability activism and so on, you know, again, reflecting on your work, you know, we're looking back now with the advantage of, of decades of hindsight. Do you think there's anything in that or, or what would your response to them be? So firstly,
1: just let me say, because a lot of people have no idea what I've written about people with disability. Um, I believe that, uh, any, uh, you know, anyone with a disability, uh, ought to be given the the best possible life that they can and I think society ought to do as much as it can with people who are able to be part of a normal society, to, to give them access to normal society, to um, facilitate their full participation in society. I think it's wrong to discriminate against people with disabilities in areas like uh, employment or housing or uh, education. Um, It's nothing to do with that, that um, my views evoked criticism. Um, My views are really to do with, um, essentially, with whether parents of children born with severe disabilities and and with poor prognoses um, should have the option of um, ensuring that those children do not live, that they die rapidly and humanely. Um, Now... This is not so far from things that society already accepts in in two different ways. One of them is um, many of these same people who will criticise what I say about people with disability will defend the right of a pregnant woman to uh, end her pregnancy. Um, And that will include to end her pregnancy if she has a diagnosis that the child has a disability. Um, And that indicates the same kind of view that I'm that I'm advocating it's just that uh, where they would say the pregnant woman has this right I would say and so do the parents immediately after birth when the child is obviously unable to be consulted in any way and when they're acting on uh, good information which may include not just the advice of the doctor but should include for example the advice from organizations of parents with uh, children with that disability or if the disability is one that is not a profound cognitive disability of people with that disability themselves. Um, So, uh, you know, that's one way in which, as I say, what I'm saying is is not that different from what's already happening. A second way is that um, in every intensive care hospital that deals with newborn infants in the affluent world, doctors will consult parents on whether to continue life support for infants with severe disability. And uh, often they will say to the parents, you know, if you think we should withdraw the respirator, your child, um, because of this prognosis, we will do that. Sometimes they will even encourage the parents to do that, um, and knowing, of course, that if they withdraw the respirator, the child will die because the child is too young to breathe unaided. Um, so that's also a decision that is made on the basis of saying, it's better that this child should not live then the child should live with this um, very severe disability that the child will have. So if people want to criticise me for my attitudes and disability, uh, about disability, which is merely a proposal, there there isn't, it's it's not in place that parents have this uh, legal right at this stage, but they should also be criticising the hospitals where this is practised and they should be seeking to restrict the rights of women to terminate their pregnancies. Uh, on grounds of uh, a disability. Those are those are the same attitudes. And there are some people in the disability movement who are consistent about that, I have to say, and who think that all those things should be stopped. Um, but most of the people don't want to, the other thing stopped. They only want the choice of parents to decide that where the child will not die by simply withdrawing medical treatment, such as a respirator, but where the child will then continue to live and suffer for some period and may or may not die at the end of that period. They don't want the parents to be able to give, or the doctor to be able to give, on the parents' request, uh, a lethal injection so that the child dies humanely. So, you know, having said that, I think you can see why a utilitarian who wants to reduce suffering, as I do, would think that rather than have children linger um, for a long time uh, when, you know, if you could take them off a respirator and that would end their life, you would, but they're not on a respirator, so you can't do that. Rather than have them linger like that and then possibly die. Um, some weeks or months down the track, um, it would be better to make sure that they die humanely, uh, uh, rapidly rather than
0: slowly. I guess, Peter, just to finish up, is there a message that you have for people that eat meat out there? You know, because obviously vegans and vegetarians have a bit of a reputation for being quite um, proselytising, which is quite ironic. You know, you're, you yourself are an, are an atheist. Do you think that that's a good thing? Do you think we should do it anyway or what what, what what do you think is the best way to advance the kind of ethical commitments around non-human animals in your experience? Um,
1: You know, look, I don't really proselytise when I'm face-to-face with people over the table. Um, but if they ask me why I'm not eating meat, um, and, you know, if they haven't heard of animal liberation or anything like that, they don't know me very well, um, uh, certainly I, I'll, I'll tell them then that I, you know, I'll tell them what the meat, what it involves in terms of animal suffering. Um, I'll also, of course, talk, we we didn't get into climate change, but I'll talk about the greenhouse gas emissions involved in uh, the animal industry. Um, And we can also talk about public health risks of which, uh, you know, the pandemic is um, an example or the next pandemic may be an example. Previous pandemics certainly have come from factory farms. So um, I think there's a range of strong reasons for uh, not eating meat and for getting you know reasonably close to to, to being vegan I, I put it that way because I recognize that for you know some people those those are difficult decisions and I think what's what's really important is that people take a first step and actually you know I did that myself um, it's now more than 50 years ago that uh, my wife and I became vegetarians. It took a lot longer to think about the other animal products. But w- we didn't even do that at first. The first step we took was to say, we're not going to buy factory farm products. Um, and that lasted maybe a month or so. And then we thought, well, you know, there's there's various other problems, cruelties with non-factory farmed animals as well. And we were starting to develop an interest in cooking other dishes and we were feeling good on that. Uh, what we're eating so it it wasn't very long before we moved to being uh, vegetarian anyway if if not vegan so um, I would say take that first step Uh, eliminate factory farm products from your diet I think that's really completely indefensible and anybody who looks at what happens to animals in factory farms should see that that's indefensible Um, and then you know make your own decisions after that point see where you get to in the end.
0: Thanks Peter I found that such a useful interview We don't often talk to philosophers here on Navarro Media, uh, but I think it's a really great way to stress test various arguments. And I have to say, in the case of vegetarianism in particular, and it's something I write about in Fully Automated Luxury Communism, climate change and COVID-19 have made those arguments stronger than ever. So I think a really timely and important conversation. If you want to see more interviews and conversations that cover the big questions of the 21st century, whether it's climate change or pandemics or automation, inequality, racism, I could go on, but I don't want to depress you too much. Why not make a one-off payment to Navarra Media or even a rolling subscription? Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and help us grow and find an ever bigger audience. And It's important to say we don't just talk about the problems and the challenges and the crises of Navarra Media but also often the opportunities and the possibilities. And I don't want to weigh you down with all the bad news and pessimism that's going around lately, but Navarro Media's done quite well. We've managed to grow, and that's all because of you, the kind generosity of our supporters. So if you want to join those guys, if you want to be part of this movement to create a better media for different politics, go to navarromedia.com forward slash support.